0: That's investher, H-E-R, con.com, promo code 100, best ever to get $100 off your ticket.
1: I think the key is to stick to that. Stick to your fundamentals. Have some flexibility because the markets are different today than they were three, four years ago. If you're looking for the golden goose out there, it probably doesn't exist. If it does, the numbers probably aren't all that accurate. Maybe if it looks like it's a golden goose, it's probably not.
0: Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. I want to introduce to you Ash Patel. He's a full-time commercial real estate investor. He's going to be doing the interview today and a lot of them moving forward. I'm still going to be doing interviews, just not as many. And he is going to ask tough questions questions while still building rapport. That way it's not awkward. He's a good friend of mine. Join me in welcoming Ash Patel.
2: Hello, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Ash Patel, and I'm here with our guest today, Rob Mehta. Rob is joining us from Miami, Florida, and Rob is a full-time real estate investor and has a portfolio of multifamily apartments. Rob, how are you today? Hey, Ash, I'm doing well. How are you? Doing well, man. Thanks for joining us. Before we get started, Rob, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now?
1: Yes, absolutely. So I've been in the real estate space actually since I graduated college, which was 27 years ago. And uh, I've done a little bit of everything, I guess you could say. I have invested in, started investing in small, single family, townhomes, condos, that kind of thing. And eventually that evolved into getting into the multifamily game. Most of my focus is on smaller multifamily properties, smaller two, four unit kind of things. And I've been involved in some bigger things through some partnerships and things throughout the years as well. And as I said, I've been in the real estate game for a long time. I am a broker in several states. I'm originally from the Twin Cities. So I've been a broker up there for going on 20 some years and about the last five in Florida here. So we do business in both places and we work with a lot of investors as well that are looking to. Purchase and obviously move on and dispose of certain assets and do all sorts of things.
2: Rob, when you went to college, did you know you were going to go into real estate?
1: Did not. Actually, I've told this story to just a few people, but I bumped into a newspaper ad at the time. And I was basically looking for a side hustle while I attended school and bumped into an ad, went into the real estate office that was advertising, interviewed with the manager. And the manager kept saying in this sort of interview, Kept calling real estate a career. And that was the last thing I was looking for, right? Because I was in school. So I left that meeting with a pamphlet of material. I didn't really think much of it at all, really, for the next several weeks. And all of a sudden, of course, I'm sure this manager did this with every interview that he had. Sent me a nice little thank you note saying how wonderful I'd be in real estate. And actually, once I received that thank you note is when I actually thought about getting my license. So had I not gotten that note, I honestly don't think I would have gotten my
2: license back then. So you got your real estate license while you were in college. I did. And what were you studying? What was your predetermined career path?
1: It was really predetermined. I was studying business administration. I knew that I wanted to do something in the business world. I really had no idea what at the time.
2: Okay. So you graduated college and did you go right into real estate or did you follow the traditional route and get a job in business?
1: So I got my license. My sophomore year of college and my first solid year, year and a half, was obviously very part time, still going to school. But after that first, I want to say probably 16 months had passed, I realized that this really could be a career. This really could be a business opportunity. So by the time I finished college, I decided that I was going to jump in with both feet at that time and right give it a go. Real
2: estate. Right into real estate. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Here, here's a good question for you. Some of our best ever listeners, if they're in college and considering, somehow getting into real estate, would you recommend they get their license?
1: I do. I think the license really opens up a lot of doors, whether you're going to be an investor, whether you're going to actually work with clients, or perhaps it leads you down another path. So I think it does. I think it gives you an appreciation for the inner workings of the business in general. And I think it gives you a solid foundation of knowledge to work from.
2: All right. You graduated college and now you are a full-time realtor. Correct. When was your first investment acquisition?
1: My first was I think I'd been in the business about two and a half years and I bought my first property. It was a single family property, but interestingly enough, and the reason why I bought it is that it was a split level home that was set up as a duplex, even though it wasn't a legal duplex. I guess you could call it the proverbial mother in law apartment, right? Separate entrance, two kitchens, multiple bathrooms, all that kind of good stuff. And decided, hey, this is a great first investment to make. It was actually The first property that I also bought to live in, as well as knowing that I could rent out the other half.
2: Good. What was your next acquisition?
1: The next one wasn't as great of a slam dunk as the first one. I ended up buying a townhome on a golf course. This was up in the Northwest suburbs of the Twin Cities. Beautiful property, needed a little bit of cosmetic rehab, but the location was great. Kind of do the same thing. My first few acquisitions were made as owner-occupied. So I'd buy a property, I'd live in it for a while, do a little bit of work, and then I'd move on. So same thing, bought this townhome, said, okay, I can go in here and I can replace the fuchsia carpet and I can get rid of the wallpaper and the bones were good. The location was fantastic. It, it rented out fine. It definitely wasn't as great of when I call it slam dunk. That first property that I bought really was the slam dunk. It really did well over the years. The second one was just kind of so-so, but it was okay.
2: Rob, so now you have two properties. What year was this?
1: Let's see. I got my license in late 97. So this would have been about 99.
2: Okay. So we're heading into the 2000s. You've got two properties. What's your next move?
1: So my next move, I made another acquisition after that townhome. I bought another single family this time. And this one, actually, I bought it as owner-occupied. I actually never lived in it. Don't tell the bank that, but the money was flowing, right? It was easy to get loans at the time. I'm sure some people remember and made sense. So I did that. So that was my third. Back to the single family route. The other thing I realized with the townhome is HOA fees. And that was Something that I thought I'd done a good job calculating, really when it came down to it, it, it ate up a good chunk of the rental revenue on the townhome that I'd purchased. So then I decided, you know what, let me focus back on single family. Let me get back and look for my next buy in that direction.
2: All right. So Rob, now you've got three properties. We're heading towards the financial crash and the housing crash. Yes. Take me to the <laughs> journey up to that point. Well, let's see. Let's
1: talk about the housing crash. I can recall distinctly for us, that was really, we were starting to feel, I would say, sort of the initial preliminary effects of it around 05. The market just seemed to have changed. And 06 is really when it hit for us. At that point, I had opened my own company after being in the business for about three years. I opened my own brokerage. And that was around the end of 2000. So by 04, 05, we're doing great business. We're growing as a company. 05 came along and said, we started to feel a little bit of a hiccup. And in 06, the market went off a cliff, at least where I was in the Twin Cities. And all of a sudden, my little company went from doing 80 to 120 deals a month with my agents. We were doing 30 deals a month, not enough to justify the lease that we had and the overhead and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Luckily or unluckily, I'm not sure which one, I did not buy a lot of real estate leading right up to the crash, mainly because a lot of my funds were being funneled into this company to keep the company growing. So again, I'm no hindsight there whatsoever. That's just how things happen. So I had stopped personally investing, I would say, probably around 2002, 2003. Again, with every other sort of available dollar that I had in growing the company. Unfortunately, we took on more office space around, I want to say, early 'oh five, which was, in hindsight, not a great move. But we did because we were growing. We needed to house agents and all that good stuff. So when 06 came around and all of a sudden we've got more space than we need, agents are starting to drop off throughout that year because of the business. It just put us in a really, really bad position financially.
0: We'll get back to the show in just two minutes, but first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. One of the hardest tasks to balance while scaling your real estate investing business is accounting. Well, realestateaccounting.co takes care of the numbers for you so you can grow your business and revenue. REA helps property managers and investors save time and money by automating back office, financial, admin, and accounting. Starting is quick and seamless, from accounts payable to reconciliations, taxes, and reporting, go to realestateaccounting.co forward slash bestever to find out how REA clients save on average 30% By leveraging their accounting services versus hiring in-house. With CPAs on staff and being owner-operators themselves, REA knows the challenges of your growing real estate business. Try it risk-free at realestateaccounting.co forward slash bestever and remember to mention the Best Ever podcast sent you to receive up to $1,800 towards onboarding and services. That's realestateaccounting.co forward slash bestever. or assist you to diversify your investments in multifamily. Go to thinkmultifamily.com forward slash coaching to learn how they help working professionals just like you transform their future through partnering and community. In fact, the majority of real estate investors who partner with Think Multifamily get involved in a general partnership within six months. Thinkmultifamily.com forward slash coaching highlights the partnerships, joint ventures, and resources all available through the coaching program. Go to thinkmultifamily.com forward slash coaching to learn how to become a member and get involved.
2: The fact that you were spending money on office space and not spending money on single family houses or other real estate investments meant that you didn't overpay for a lot of deals leading up to that crash. Yes, good point. If you can go back to that time, is there anything reminiscent as to what's going on today?
1: Yes and no. This question comes up quite a bit. Everybody's wondering and of course the first thing I always say is boy if I had that crystal ball <laughs> I mean I know lottery numbers and everything else but the main difference that I see right now some similarities and differences the big difference and I'll start with the difference first is when you look back at that time in the marketplace the early 2000s money was cheap money did not really require really anybody to do anything more than to have a social security number and have the ability to borrow I remember one of the first loans I ever got. It was a stated income loan because I was self-employed and I needed to do the a stated infamous income qualified. No doc
2: loans, yeah. The yeah. Ninos,
1: yeah, the Ninja, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> and I remember the the lender that I was working with, the last piece of paper that he needed to get this loan approved through the underwriter is he needed a business card.
2: And <laughs> You went to Kinko's actually, and got uh, a business card.
1: I actually had business cards because I was in the business, but at that moment, I had my laptop with me and I didn't have a card with. So I quickly hopped on Microsoft Word and I created a card and I sent it to them. And sure enough, the loan got approved. This was the craziness of that market. Another side note, I can tell you about being invited to some insanely over-the-top parties that mortgage brokers used to throw with all this money that they were making back then too, but that's a whole (laughs) nother conversation. Back then, that was kind of the norm. But the big difference, of course, is the money situation the money situation today, people have a lot more skin in the game. We don't have these mortgages out there. We do. I don't want to say that we don't. There are NINA mortgages for those listeners maybe that don't know about that. They are out there. But they. Sure NINA exactly is enough.
2: no income, um, no assets.
1: Yeah, no income, no assets. I think NINJA was the other word, which was no income, no job, no <laughs> assets, something like that, right? There's all these great phrases back then. These loans are around they've come back. But today to get a loan like that typically involves 25, 30% liquid into the deal. Whereas back then, hey, 0% and you sign your name on a piece of paper and you'd be in business. So that's the big difference that I see right now is with the, with the financial situation in terms of being able to qualify and people having a lot more liquid into their properties, a lot more cash deals. We see so many cash deals in Florida. Our group, we operate all over the state and we probably see Upwards to 40% of the clients that we work with are going cash, partly because of the market, but partly because they've got the liquid to do it. So that's really the big, big difference that I see back when you think about 03, 04, 02 even, versus today is the situation with the financing, people having the liquid into the game, all of that.
2: Today, there's a ton of liquidity out there.
1: Yes, absolutely.
2: Okay. I never heard that ninja loan, but what a great acronym instead of a no doc loan. I got a ninja loan. Actually, a ninja you feel pretty good about yourself.
1: All it right. Kind so of was, right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: So 2008 <laughs> unfolds. And what does your world look like after that?
1: That was 06, 07, 08. I've told people this too. People said, well, why you survived sort of the dark ages of the real estate market. And I said, yeah, I did. But honestly, I did because we didn't know how long sort of the dark ages were going to last. 06, as I said, was kind of like uh, the market falling off a cliff. But for myself and many other people that I knew in the industry that had never experienced that, here we're thinking, hey, this is a six-month or a one-year blip. And then one year went into two, two went into three, three went into four. So it's not that I was stubborn by any means or, or saying, well, I'm going to ride this thing out to the end. Nobody knew how long that end was going to last or how, how long that market was going to be. And I think looking back for us, I think we started to see a recovery maybe around 2011. Okay. A realistic recovery. So from 2006 to 2011, quite a bit of time there that went by. Maybe 2010 as well, but even so, four years now that have gone by with the markets doing what they did. So when you say 08, it was not a good time. The company that I had, I actually ended up selling the company. I owned a franchise REMAX office. I was in the REMAX network at the time. Ended up selling my REMAX to my biggest competitor, which was actually another Remax group that pretty much had circled my little office with a number of their offices. So it was kind of a, well, if I can't beat them, I better join them and stop the bleeding as well. So we did that toward the end of 07 in hindsight. And again, being what it is, should have done it in 04, but at least we were able to stop the bleeding and stop the losses and get back into focusing on sales at that point.
2: All right. So you stayed in the game and you're back into selling houses how do you continue to acquire more real estate?
1: Well, really the biggest opportunity that existed there for any of us at that time really was when the market did what it did. We saw foreclosures go through the roof and short sales, all of that. That took place again during, let's say, 07, 08, 09, 10. I wish I had more liquid to make purchases at the time. But I didn't. We did make a few acquisitions, again, some smaller properties, duplexes and things like that. Again, kind of focusing on knowing that the rental market is always going to be there. And if we can acquire at the right price, it made sense to jump into that. And the natural progression for me, at least, was, okay, now I've owned a few single families, a townhome here or there. What's the next thing? Well, I should start taking a look at duplexes, triplexes, quads, fourplexes, that kind of thing. So that was kind of the natural progression, right? And of course, these properties also, you can obviously finance them with a traditional mortgage as well. You don't need to step into commercial financing or anything of that sort. So again, made a couple of acquisitions during that time, really not a whole lot. Didn't have a whole lot of money to play with, of course, because my income was solely derived from our property sales, from working with clients. So again, hindsight being what it is, would have been nice to make 10 acquisitions during that period, but that didn't take place. But did pick up a couple of properties that we held on to for some time. And as the markets, of course, recovered and bounced back, the equity there and the appreciation was a great thing to see recover.
2: Yeah, and being a realtor, Does that give you the inside track on deals? Is there any issue with if somebody comes to you wanting to list their duplex or quad, is Mm -hmm. there any issues with you saying, you know what, I'll buy it?
1: I don't think there is as long as you are representing your client properly and thinking about your fiduciary duties to your client. I think that's very, very important as a licensee. That's something in practicality that means that you or having a very open conversation about valuation of that property. If you yourself have an interest in it, of course, obviously bringing that to the conversation as well. This is a problem that I think it doesn't matter what market you're in, but it's something that's out there. When you look at today, there's a lot of listings that are what we call pocket listings, right? They never hit the open market. Well, if the listing never hits the open market, did that seller really achieve the highest and best price that they could have? So again, as you mentioned about having an interest, I don't think there's anything wrong in that, but I think the right thing and the right way to operate ethically is to, of course, do a proper market analysis for your client, present them with that. And obviously, if you have an interest in the property, that's great. Have that discussion as well. There are people that don't really want the hassle of going on the market or in the case of an investment property, if they've got renters there, they don't want to inconvenience the renters and they very well might want to do an off-market deal. But I think you have to present those options.
2: Thank you You for that. I wondered what the ethical rule or what the standard practice was for that. So that clears mm-hmm. that up. Well, let's keep going. So you've got uh, some quads. You're building up your portfolio of real estate now. And what's next?
1: Next was really survival to those years. <laughs> that was really what was next. As I said, I think we started to see recovery in the markets around 2010. And really, I think significantly in 2011, those things really started to bounce back. We saw obviously the amount of foreclosures and short sales finally starting to dwindle a bit. In my market at the time in the Twin Cities, we were experiencing, I would say, probably about 35 or so percent of the market, maybe even 40% were comprised of short sales and foreclosures. And it sort of became a running joke that if you unlocked a door and you walked in and if you saw furniture, you were sometimes surprised by that. Wow, somebody actually still lives in this house. That was kind of the reality for a long time. So yeah, the immediate future was really just survival, getting through that period of time. And once I got through that... I actually made, I guess you could say a lateral career move. I stayed in the industry, but after I sold my company and I joined the company that bought my company out, I joined that company just as a broker associate. And I was with them for a couple of years. And then I got recruited away actually by a a large national firm to manage for them. So actually that was, as you talked about a career, that was the first time in my life where I actually had a salaried position because the whole time before that coming out of college was commission sales. And of course, owning a company, but that still meant that I was beholden to the commission model with that. So I didn't really start acquiring again until after I made that move. got hired by this national firm to manage uh, part of their local real estate business in the Twin Cities and uh, had that stability again, had that income again, could qualify for a traditional loan. Yeah, which was that have something have I job,
2: get a loan. Yeah, no,
1: <laughs> a real job. What kind of <laughs>
2: assets were you managing?
1: I was managing a sales office for them. Okay, uh, it was it. a large company with about, I think at the time, about 16, 17 branches in, in the Twin Cities and greater Minnesota so when I joined the company, it was as a sales manager role to manage for them. So that's what I did for a few years while I still kept selling, of course, as well. That was part of our agreement is that I could still take care of my clients. At that point, having been in the business for upwards of, let's say, about 12 years or whatever that was, I had a book of business that I didn't want to give up at that point. So I didn't start acquiring again until I had a quote unquote real job, a real salary and could finally get financing and pursue some acquisitions.
2: And then what was your next
1: big move? The next one, I was always thinking about, okay, made some moves, picked up some duplexes. And then it's like, okay, well, now let's start thinking about bigger properties. So the next logical step was, hey, well, what about fourplexes? Let's start taking a look at quads or fourplexes, whatever you want to call them. My next couple of purchases actually were done as partnerships with actually client that I'd worked with over the years that had become good, trusted clients and felt like, hey, this could be a good partnership to enter into and spread the risk a little bit in terms of moving upwards a little bit. And, and Were you uh, finding so- those deals? I was, yeah, I was sourcing the deals by and large, and then bringing what I thought were good deals to the group, and then the group would look at the numbers, obviously look at the rent rolls and expenses and all that good stuff, and say, okay, this is a good buy. Here's where we can go in. Here's where we can maybe go in and do a little bit of value add as well. We really became a fan of the what I call value add, meaning we find something that has good bones, but hey, if we can dress it up a little bit, if we can put in some landscaping, if we can repaint, uh, put in some new appliances, redo a few things, and raise rents by. 50 or a hundred bucks a month, that made a lot of sense.
0: We'll get back to the show. But first, some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Mark your calendars for the Best Ever Conference, February 24th through 26th, back in person at the Gaylord Rockies Convention Center. Join the experienced community and phenomenal speakers for a weekend of learning the best commercial real estate strategies, building relationships, and quite frankly, having a lot of fun. As a bonus, once you purchase your ticket, you are put into a mini mastermind group to start making connections with other commercial real estate investors immediately. Get the lowest prices right now at besteverconference.com. That's besteverconference.com.
2: So the reason for that partnership was that to use other people's capital as well?
1: It was, yeah. That was a big part of it, absolutely.
2: And was that a straight 50-50 split or how did that deal work?
1: It generally was. I did a deal once where two other investors were involved. So we, we were all 33, 33, 33, so to speak. Part of the deal. I had another deal where, where we did it with three other
2: investors and myself.
1: So there was four of us.
2: So and we were all managed, you know,
1: basically quarter.
2: Who managed the property?
1: We stepped into a few properties where there was already a property manager, an outside company that was managing. And the ones where we bought where there wasn't one, we hired companies to do it. I never wanted to do it myself. And the reason was, even though of course the real estate background and all that, number one, dealing with renters was not my forte and I didn't want to touch it. Number two, having been a broker, having had my own company before, and then of course, now at this point, I was working for a very, very large national company, as I said, in a sales manager role, liability was always kind of at the top of my head in terms of what am I doing here? And am I creating more of a liability situation for myself and my own license? So that was the other reason. So I always felt that having a good property manager was money well spent. Fewer vacancies, somebody that's very proactive in maintaining the property, checking in with the tenants, all of that. And that's what we did. We always hired it out.
2: Yeah. Rob, what's the biggest deal that you've done?
1: The biggest deal personally is we bought an eight unit building in the city of Minneapolis. That was actually the deal where I had three other investors involved in that deal. So we brought the investors together. That deal was kind of interesting. The existing owner was willing to carry a note for us for some time. So when we first bought it, the the owner was willing to act as the bank, which was really nice. So we were able to step in with some favorable rates. The cash flow already was, was pretty decent.
2: Let's dive into that a little bit. Did you mm -hmm. present that offer to the owner?
1: Yeah, we were dealing directly with the owner on that property.
2: And then how did you approach him about seller financing?
1: Well, what was interesting is the owner was referred to me through another contact and that agent wasn't involved in the deal. This was actually an off-market deal. It was an agent that I knew that knew the owner. So the agent made the introduction said, this is somebody that would consider doing a financing carryback situation, holding paper, that kind of thing. So when I first made contact with the owner, that was one of the natural conversations that we had. Hey, if you are willing to do this, what would the terms look like? That sort of thing. So again, having a little bit of lead helped with that.
2: And what was the purchase price of that?
1: The purchase price of that one was at the time, I want to say it was about eight and a quarter, roughly.
2: And how Um, much did the seller hold back?
1: We all came to the table total with about 300000 So about five and a quarter roughly is what the seller agreed to carry back.
2: Did you get a loan on that as well? No, we brought our own
1: capital. So we all had cash that we brought to the table. That's why why there was four of us in that deal, because we knew that we would need more capital than any one of us had access to by ourselves.
2: Why didn't you try to go to a bank to get some of that?
1: I could have. Mainly it was because we had this group already established and we just felt like, okay, if we're going into this deal, obviously we needed to have some capital in to make the numbers work primarily so that was the main reason all of us have the capital to invest into that deal. So we felt like if we do this deal, we've got a seller carry back. We've got a note. We can always go back and refinance, right? With the bank at some point, maybe we do a cash out or some form of a cash out at that point. The valuation makes sense.
2: And Rob, yeah. what were the terms of the seller financing? The five and a quarter that the seller held?
1: It was a five-year arrangement. So basically a five-year term, if you want to call it with a balloon, basically. So with five years, if we were keeping this property to refinance it into a mortgage and all of that, I don't recall what the rate was at the time, to be quite honest. That might come to me. I'll have to think about that. It was pretty favorable. That was a pretty favorable rate. This guy was retiring. He actually had a number of assets that he was looking to get off his plate. And actually it was interesting too, and I didn't understand this because of the way that I thought about it, but he was actively managing his properties as well. So he did not have a property management company in place. So not only did he have all these units, he had different buildings, he had some fourplexes and things too, but he was the guy that was collecting the rents and doing the maintenance and all of that. So it had come time for him to get out of the game, so to speak. And I think that was one of the reasons why he was so motivated to do some seller financing at a good term.
2: Yeah. So that was a win for everybody. That was a
1: win for everybody. Yeah, that really was. It really worked out well all the way around, basically.
2: Rob, what's your best real estate investing advice ever?
1: My best advice, to be quite honest, is don't ever rush into something. Do your due diligence. We run numbers probably eight different ways before we decide to make a move on something. Now, that's easier said than done. Right now, you look at the markets and how fast things are moving and all of that. It's easy to get caught up in the frenzy. It really is. Um, are people overpaying? Are they not? We can't necessarily be the judge of that. But I think if you're using good fundamentals, and every investor's different. Every investor has their magic number that they need to be on, whether it's their cap rate whether it's their cash on cash or whether it's an IRR, whatever yardstick they're using to measure. I think the key is to stick to that. Stick to your fundamentals. Have some flexibility because the markets are different today than they were three, four years ago. If you're looking for the golden goose out there, it probably doesn't exist. If it does, the numbers probably aren't all that accurate. Maybe if it looks like it's a golden goose, it's probably not.
2: What's the most important metric that you use when you evaluate deals?
1: We look at a couple of things, but I would say probably most important just to <clears throat> give us an idea of even if we want to further look at a property, it's just to run a, a cap rate scenario. Take a look at the revenue versus what the asking is. And is it even in the realm of possibility? Does it even fit the mold of what we want? So we kind of start there usually. Working what from kind there. of cap
2: rates are you looking for?
1: To be quite honest, not that great. And again, we've had to adapt, of course, to the market as well. So these days, if we see something north of five, we'll give it a good hard look. Obviously, there's investors that are looking for the golden goose out there and they're looking for the nines and tens and all of that, which I'm not saying that they don't exist. They're out there. Sometimes they're challenging properties, challenging neighborhoods, that kind of thing. We tend to stay away from those. For me, I would much rather have a lower cap rate, but have a better area, have a better client mix, that kind of thing versus the opposite where it's much more challenging. Yeah, I might make a little bit more money, but the headaches might be greater as well. So we usually start with that cap rate. And then again, if it sort of fits like, hey, okay, this is the realm of where this fits. All right, now we can do a little bit more further due diligence and figure out where we're
2: at. Have you considered non-residential commercial?
1: I personally have not gotten involved in that except for working with some investors that have made moves in that direction. We have a client that has an investment group that we've worked with that has done a number of strip shopping center purchases, that kind of thing. We have another client that's done some larger multifamily as well, with obviously some family money and some different things as well. So I personally am not for my own portfolio. But for our clients, yeah, we've definitely worked on some bigger things like that. We get into the odd out parcel and things like that as well as needs come up.
2: Yeah, I would suggest looking into that. There's a lot of information on the Best Ever website. Mm -hmm. about non-residential commercial deals. The cap rates are a little bit higher today than what you're seeing with multifamily. Rob, are you ready for the lightning round? Sure, I think so. All right, let's do it. Rob, what's the best ever way you like to give back?
1: I give back to a few charities throughout the year that I personally have some connection to. So we do some things with Books for Africa and we do some things with Feed the Children. Again, just some personal causes and things. And then we do some direct donations to some charities as well my family's background is my parents were both born in India. So we do some direct giving to some charities in Mumbai where they're both from as well.
2: Rob, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you?
1: They can reach out to me a few different ways. My website is robmadeuppartners.com. They can reach out to me through the website. They can give me a call at my office, 305-771-0155. If they want to email me, my email is very simple. It's just rob at robmadeuppartners.com. They can reach out to me in whichever manner they prefer.
2: Yeah, Rob, thank you so much for being on the show today. You've taken us through the journey of becoming a realtor in college, and you've taken us with you on your journey to acquiring a fair amount of real estate. You survived the 2008 crash. So thank you for all the great advice today and have a best ever day. Thanks, Ash.
1: Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it.